Hi, I'm Dr. Stan Steindl. Welcome to Compassion in a T-Shirt in Session, where I get the chance to speak with practitioners and researchers from all around the world about their work in compassion and self-compassion. Today, I'm speaking with Michaela Thomas, a UK-based clinical psychologist and couples therapist who has over 15 years experience in the field. She established and runs The Thomas Connection and has recently published a book all about compassion for couples called The Lasting Connection. Michaela's special interests lie in compassion-focused therapy, acceptance and commitment therapy, perfectionism and couples relationships. Her insights into couples relationships and how they work are profound. And I do hope you enjoy being in session with my friend, Michaela Thomas. Well, welcome, Michaela Thomas, to um, Compassion in a T-shirt in session. How's everything over there in the UK at the moment for you? Yeah, it's not too bad. I mean, obviously, we spent sort of four months or so in, in effectively in lockdown. So the last couple of weeks, we've been able to meet up with loved ones indoors. So and uh, obviously, our seasons are polar opposite to yours. So hmm. I'm now wearing sort of short sleeved. I'm actually the closest to a T-shirt that I could find for today's <laughs> occasion. Um, so we are we're warming up a bit, but it has been atrociously cold for a few months. And mm. this has been the first week when the weather is better. So yeah. looking forward to doing things like, you know, opening up in the world and, and doing more things that are connecting with others. Yes, absolutely. So I've been really keen to um, to catch up with you and to hear about really the work that you do with com compassion focused approaches with couples, I guess, is, is kind of one of the, the central things. Although I, I know there's, there's many things that, that you do in and around all of that as well. But I, I just thought, yeah, I, I wondered whether you could start by telling us a little bit, of, a little bit about yourself or, or your life or, or your work, I guess. We, we like yeah. to start with the big questions here on, on compassion in a t-shirt. So yeah, tell us a bit about all that. I, I've come to realize that I'm a multi-hyphenated person. And when someone introduced that concept to me, everything just fell into place. Multi-hyphenated is when you are, say, clinical psychologist, hyphen, couples therapist, hyphen, speaker, hyphen, author, hyphen, podcaster. Mm -hmm. um, so I just sort of felt, ah, well, that makes sense because I have a lot of strings to my bow. So yes, those are the things that I do professionally. Mm -hmm. But I'm also a mother, I'm a wife, I'm a friend. Obviously, I have many roles, uh, as all of us do. Um, I'm a Swede living in, in the UK, so I'm sort of honorary British, but originally Swedish. Um, yeah, so that's, that's a little bit what I do. I, I specialize in working with anxiety and depression and stress that is often linked to perfectionism. So common mental health problems, but often they're linked to a sense to strive for perfection, kind of being an overachiever, maybe getting caught into patterns of people pleasing or kind of symptoms of, I guess, feeling very burnt out, very tired, very fatigued. So your body kind of giving signals that it's time to take a break, but then your mind is telling you that you're not allowed to, not giving you the permission to take a break because of old scripts and old narratives uh, around not being good enough unless we strive for achievement. So that's what I'm really, really passionate about. And that obviously shows up in my couples work as well. I tend to get a lot of high striving couples where you can imagine that when we are very busy, when we are very 
caught up in the sort of need to strive and worry that we're not good enough that will ripple out in the connection we have with another person so I see a lot of anxious attachment styles people who are really worried about the other person leaving or overcompensate and people please to prevent them from leaving so that's how my sort of two main niches perfectionism and couples kind of married together it was kind of crossover there with the highest driving couples I see um, and I do a lot of sort of see a lot of corporates in London uh, so do some corporate talks and I also have a special interest in perinatal mental health. So being a mother myself, who had quite a difficult journey into motherhood, I've been, I do a few bits of pro bono work for uh, apps and magazines and things like that that are aimed at helping women's mental health. It, it's amazing how those kinds of themes of perfectionism, self-criticism, you know, they, they just weave through so much of, of what we experience as humans don't they you know the, the sort of and and they 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 really are very difficult bedfellows to use a couple sort of metaphor but but you know perfectionism on the one hand you know I must be perfect and self-criticism on the other hand I'm, I'm never good enough you know and, and mm. together they they really wreak a, a bit of havoc don't they they people. do a number on you for sure and and I think it's in my work I'm also really interested in the the interaction between the internal pressure we put on ourselves, our own high expectations, standards, uh, the inner critical voice that we have, as well as the external pressure. Often when I come into contact with someone who's in a corporate setting, that's often in a toxic environment. So there's lack of compassionate leadership perhaps, or they have come from a family background and a, a kind of culture in their country, even where perfectionism has been praised. So mm. kind of it's often the phrase of um, perfectionism is the only addiction we get praised for because there's, there's so many benefits to, to do in this there's so many gains that each individual has uh, so it's really hard to let go of it when we then still have those negative costs of having to live very closely uh, related to that inner critical voice saying that well regardless of how much you've strived mm -hmm. you're still not good enough so mm -hmm. it's a really difficult balance there of helping people to come to realize that this is costing you more than it's worth mm -hmm. and that's obviously very connected to values and how you're living your life what's going to be meaningful for you so I married together compassion-focused therapy with acceptance and commitment therapy, but that's for the individuals I see, and then for the couples, I weave it together with behavioral couples therapy as well. Oh. So those three models together, I feel, captures as much as I can of the picture of the complexity of what's going on here. Because when you work with couples, it's what's going on internally within one person, what's going on internally within the other person, and what's going on interpersonally or interpersonally between these two people. So you're working on three layers at the same time. And that also is then set in the context of the environment, the, the global sort of pressures around them uh, that feeds into these two individuals, intrapersonal pressures as well. So it's, there's a lot going on. And I think it's really important to acknowledge that the environment we're in, you know, perfectionism researchers are showing that the, the levels of perfectionism are rising, you know, quite drastically. So it's not just well, here's an individual who has high standards and so we need to treat them as an individual. We also look at the context that they, um, they, they exist in. And that, that I think compassion gives us a really nice angle to that uh, reality check that it's really hard to be kind to yourself when you're bombarded with messages saying you should be unkind to yourself. We look at any women's magazine, for instance. I don't read them for that reason because they feed perfectionism. So I don't, I don't look at them. I kind of curate what messages come in front of me. So I hope that that makes sense of how, how I think it's not just within you. That's the answer. It's just everything around you as well. It, it, it almost is like perfectionism 
has its own three flows in a way. You know, it, we, we have the, the internal self-perfectionism. Um, we can feel perfectionism being kind of imposed upon us by others. Um, but sometimes too, I guess, we have expectations. We have expectations of, of others to be perfect too. And, and I can totally imagine that, that those three different kind of orientations there could, could be in and amongst a, a couple relationship. Absolutely. I mean, and the researchers are on your side there. You know, one of the most commonly used perfectionism scales is looking at, you know, the kind of internalized perfectionism, your own high standards, the other prescribed perfectionism, the standards you place on others and the disappointment you feel when they don't live up to your expectations. Mm. I call that the sort of the pedestal and the pit. You okay. put them on the pedestal and then they make a mistake inevitably because they're humans, they will. And then you feel that they've fallen into the pit and you get very disappointed and it can be very harsh and that outward criticism can come out. And that shows up in couples very much. Mm. And the third area is the sort of socially prescribed perfectionism, what we perceive as a standard from, from coming from society, come from people around us. So mm. it is that common that researchers use those three flows to measure perfectionism and see what kind of almost like what a profile you have, how how you might be blocked, what you might be showing up with. Because there's, you know, people say that, oh, I'm a bit of a perfectionist. And they, they might think that, oh, I'm conscientious or I strive to have a good result. That's not the same as being hooked and caught up in and perfectionism that's almost like a, a clinical presentation where we then might think I burn myself to the ground I don't ever take a break I overwork my adrenal system is is short basically because I am constantly in a, in a fight or flights mode I'm constantly in threat mode so there's there's a big difference between people who say oh no I, I like to pride myself to, to have a good result at work if that is giving you more gain than it's costing you, then that's not a problem. That's, you're just an ambitious person. You're a high, high achieving person. And that's, I think that is often the way in for the people I work with, that I'm not going to take away your ambition. I'm just going to help you not drown in it. And um, that's the big, big important difference that I, you can still follow your goals and, and your, you know, your values around ambition and, you know, climbing in your career or getting that next promotion, but don't do it, you know, at your own detriment essentially mm. and I think that's that's really important when we think about how that shows up in couples because this can be very competitive also between partners if we have two ambitious people they can get so caught up in their own threat systems that they stop collaborating stop being compassionate with each other and become more critical and competitive instead and that means that they miss out on support on closeness on connection and instead have more of that threat system activation like feeling constantly oh, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm being criticized or I'm not good enough or look at what he's achieved, look what she's achieved. So it's just being able to name those internal processes in each person and also what's going on between you and those dynamics you get caught up in can be really helpful. I love that phrase. I'm not going to take your ambition away. I'm just going to help you to, to sort of, you know, not drown in it. Would you give us a, you know, what would be a kind of a definition really of that more clinical perfectionism? Yeah, I guess it's this different researchers would define it differently. But, you know, one of the sort of more workable definitions is where you're striving for perfection rather than excellence. And that striving is to the cost of your own mental and physical well-being in different ways. So, so it's actually it is costing you more than it's worth. So you strive, you continue striving despite having huge personal costs to you. And that might be uh, you're not getting enough sleep. You're not drinking enough water you're not eating enough so you're either putting on weight or losing weight uh we might be able to see if you do a full cbc a full a full blood count you might see that you're 
deficient in different areas. You might be low on different nutrients and vitamins. Um, this is obviously where functional medicine is really, really helpful in helping us understand how what goes on in the mind also impacts on the body. Uh, interestingly enough, you can see quite commonly for, for women who are high striving, and especially this is something that we see in corporate London a lot, that you have a hypertonic pelvic floor. Like you're literally so stressed out that your pelvic floor is tight constantly and it's hard to, to let go. So um, I've spoken to massage therapists, osteopaths, chiropractors, women's health physios, and just kind of uh, uh, people who are gut health specialists. And there's obviously a lot of impact on that. You can have issues with diarrhea or constipation through the, the gut brain axis, through the vagus nerve. So there's just so many different ways that this can show up. And that's the stuff that people could present with. They don't come and say, I need help because I've got perfectionism and it's kind of impacting on my life. They might do if they've been to a few episodes of therapy or read a few self-help books or listened to a few of my podcasts. They might say, oh, that's that's me, I think. But most often they come and say, I'm so stressed out, I can't sleep or I'm having panic attacks or I'm, you know, I'm I'm socially anxious that it's not going to be good enough when I'm presenting this in a meeting. So they come with the symptoms that we know are the costs of perfectionism. They come with the burnout, the stress, the fatigue, the depression, if it doesn't go long enough, the relationship breakdown, because they're never able to give in their relationship or they're giving too much in the relationship and not giving anything to themselves. So I think that's when we're kind of defining perfectionism is something that's costing you more than it's worth. And you perpetually continue to strive, even if it's to your own detriment. And actually, the, that's a really useful distinction between perfection is being perfect and, and excellence. That, that, that's actually yeah. helpful too. That, that's the first bit. And then the next bit is, is as you say, the, the impairment that, that then you know, flows, flows from all of that as well. And that's, that's There's very been helpful. different discussions around that, you know, whether we're kind of talking about healthy and unhealthy perfectionism. And I think that's almost like getting away from the dialogue that perfectionism is then hailed as, as a kind of badge of honor as, as a way as a route into success as a way to be more motivated and achieve more goals and it's actually not true that you know you, you're more likely to achieve your goals and move towards the the ambitious kind of promotions and things you have if you are aiming for the good enough if you're able to be kinder to yourself you're actually more likely to be productive and li less likely to procrastinate because not every perfectionist procrastinates and not every procrastinator is a perfectionist but there's a very strong correlation between the two and i think of it as almost like three stages that because you're aiming for such a high standard it has to be up here it has to be perfect or it's not good enough then it's so overwhelming that you don't a start so that's where the procrastination comes in. You don't even begin. It's too overwhelming. And B, you get so overwhelmed as you're doing it. So you might stop. You don't continue. You kind of give up. And C, then you don't finish. So that leaves you incomplete. And that adds to the sense of self-criticism, hooks you into the, the, the failure story of, oh, I knew it. I couldn't do this. I wasn't good enough. No point in trying. So those kind of cycles really continue. So procrastination is very fed by high standards, by by um and need to to do just the best possible rather than I'll just start somewhere and see what happens and I'll learn from the process and we'll make some tweaks as we go along kind of thing. So I think that that's important to hold in mind that that's why people often come with these sort of stress and fatigue and burnout symptoms because they've been overwhelmed. They push their nervous system to the point of, of crashing. It reminds me of, again, self-criticism where we have these assumptions about how it really helps us to be motivated or keeps us on track or, you know, and perfectionism comes along with those sort of assumptions too, that it will be really positive and effective and so on. And 
and that that kind of functional analysis of these things when we really stop and 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 look at the the function that they do play with perfectionism it might one of the functions might actually be that it creates creates that procrastination and 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 sort of takes us away actually from what mm. we're trying to achieve yeah and that's uh, obviously a lot of people find that that's very paradoxical because you think yes. i hate my procrastination why am i doing this but short term it gives you a reward in the sense that you're uh, you're avoiding the uncomfort kind of discomfort you're invo- avoiding starting with something that you fear is going to be overwhelming and it often has been overwhelming in the past so that's why people often do procrastinate because then either the goal hasn't been very clear enough and it's not valuable enough for you to do it or it is overwhelming and you just don't have enough energy to to do it so i think that's important that the function behind it is very important both in compassion focused therapy we can look at the forms and the functions of self-criticism like the scales that paul gilbert has developed but also in act which is a very behavioral type of therapy when we look at sort of the the functional um, analytic parts underneath that um, i would always look at that what's what is this serving for you why are you doing it? Because if you didn't serve any function, much like self-criticism, so perfectionism, you would have also let that go if it didn't serve a function for you. And for a lot of people, it takes several attempts of actually deeply crashing and several attempts of therapy, perhaps, or several times of kind of going rock bottom before they realize that, yes, the function it serves for me, the way it protects me from failure or protects me from uh, my inner critic being right, quote unquote, is still not as valuable as what it would be if I let go of this and I could live a meaningful life, I could feel more fulfilled, I can feel more rested, I could recover from the stress I'm under. And it takes quite a while. It's almost like that's, you know, the work you do around motivational interviewing is very, very important. They're rolling with that resistance of, mm. I, that's why I never say to people like, oh yeah, let's let's lower your standards and let's just have you do less because that just completely freaks them out and activates more threat because I want to do more because doing more means that I'm, following my rules I'm following line with what the inner critic says and then I'm safe what's been your your journey into compassion and self-compassion and maybe CFT I mean how did you how did you find your way in there well it's a it's a long journey paved with resistance if I'm really ah. honest so as a recovering perfectionist myself I first came across sort of mindfulness and act uh, when I was quite young, sort of early 20s when I was studying to be a psychologist. And my first experience with this was just being given the sort of the John Kabat-Zinn book, um, I think it's Full Catastrophe Living, it's, I think it was called, quite a hefty one. And I was given that in, in therapy because in Sweden, all psychologists, well, training psychologists have to have personal therapy to pass their training. So it's like a safeguarding to make sure that you've, you know, you've done the inner work, you've looked at your own, um, your own patterns, et cetera. So I remember this in therapy with my psychologist and she said, it would be really helpful for you if you, you know, you can do these exercises, meditate for an hour a day. And my inner perfectionist just went, no, ain't nobody got time for that. Um, I don't have time for an hour a day. And I resisted it massively. And then I sort of over the years since then, I sort of found my way in through, through yoga, through, um, you know, going on uh, traveling and sort of doing photography and finding sort of mindful ways of interacting with nature. I've, I've been much more of a sort of, um, mindfulness in practice kind of informal meditations person and I still to this day get caught up sometimes in thoughts saying but you're not really meditating are you when I'm doing breathwork stuff because I'm not pressing play on a guided exercise I tend to go stripping right back to the basics because my breath can follow with me anytime anywhere you know it's not complicated it's not 
needing to take much time, you know, and it helps regulate my, my threat system anywhere, um, anyhow. So that my journey into compassion focused therapy training into it um, has been, I think I first came across some exercises in that in sort of 2012 or so. Um, and as I was training to be a couple therapist in 2014, I was just thinking, this is fantastic stuff, like getting to really understand the functions and the histories and the shapings of each person and how they interact. And like, wouldn't it be really neat if we can bring in some compassion exercises to that as well? So I started kind of experimenting with that when I was being trained by uh, Don Borkham, who's the founder of Behavioral Couples Therapy, and kind of experimented with it ever since. Um, and so they they married, basically. <laughs> they, they met, they fell in love, and they married. And because I already had ACT training long before that, so that's kind of part of my CBT and you know behavioral training from Sweden, I already had ACT from about a decade before that. So all of these contextual behavioral kind of principles came together and layered up with compassion. Was there also bits of resistance for the compassion piece or was that more that early stuff around the mindfulness for you no there, there was probably resistance around the compassion piece as well mm. i mean i think most of us in the community who are, who are practitioners would would put our hand up to that and mm. i remember i remember clearly when paul gilbert talked about his sort of self-loathing club that that made me sort of gave me the permission to say yes i've struggled with main critic as well and i've done a lot of sort of inner practical work and attended courses and retreats uh, and that has helped massively um, to develop more of a compassionate uh, voice within me. So I have both. I'm very aware of my inner critic, and I am also very aware of my my inner mentor that I take out uh, when I need her. And um, so I have a, a lot of those intuitive practices now come more natural to me. Mm. But I think it's been helpful to have that journey because it means that I can give the permission for people to struggle with this, to have resistance, that especially people who are perfectionistic or have come from a background where they've received a lot of external criticism is really, really difficult to then give yourself the permission to, to be kind to self. I like what you mentioned there. That Was it the, the compassionate mentor? Is that the language that you yeah, use? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I talk about the inner mentor and the inner, inner mentor, which is, which is obviously the inner mentor is the compassionate other or the ideal compassionate other yeah. um, or whatever you want. It's just has lots of, um, lots of names. There's a saying in Swedish, which is a love child has many names. So uh, that's that's essentially it, isn't it? So with many variations on the same theme, right? So I like the inner mentor because it fits quite well with people who come from a corporate setting as well. They might have been given mentoring or coaching and quite enjoyed that supportiveness of it and that mm. there's an external person who you can invite in. Uh, and I often then think about sort of, you know, who's on your in, inner board team, like who's, who's the compassionate leadership team that you choose to have. And on those board meetings, it's always that, it's always that unpleasant person who, who, still has to have a say in the meeting you still have to have them on there they're still part of the agenda and that's the inner critic or the inner tormentor so you have the inner tormentor and the inner mentor so you can then choose to just give a little bit more airtime to the certain people on your board team and it also means that i you allow people the permission to have more than one idle compassionate other because there might be that well at times where i need strength and courage this person here at the table really helps me kind of do the sort of standing up tall and, and embodying that strength. And there might be one that sort of is more of a smooth operator who's a little like the diplomat and helps me to navigate really tough interpersonal conversations. And that's okay too. So some, some of my perfectionists get really hooked on this, like I need to find the ideal compassionate other. So I steer away from that language or the perfect nurturer becomes really triggering for someone who's a perfectionist because then like, 
or the image I created isn't perfect enough. So we step away from that and just say, this is one of your inner mentors. You can have just one, you can have as many as you want. You can swap them out. You choose who you seat at this table and who is part of the dialogue. Yeah, the inner critic is still gonna be part of that meeting. We all have business meetings at work where we have you know, a particular person who would rather wasn't there, but it's not up to us to fire them. And it doesn't, doesn't work. They will be replaced by someone else. They will have the equally toxic opinions. So we just kind of interact with them differently. And that's changing the dialogue within. I, I, I really appreciate your clever use of, of languaging there, you know, trying to, to sort of think carefully, like who, who is my audience and, and what might be the, the, the kind of words that are going to resonate more and, and be more sort of able to be accepted, you know, and, and, and you make a really brilliant point that the phase perfect nurturer is, is quite commonly used in CFT and, mm. and was, I think, even developed by Deborah Lee, wasn't it? In, it in was, yeah, original. it was a great phrase. I've and used it for many years. It's a fantastic but it didn't, phrase. It didn't resonate with my audience. It, 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 if someone has problems with perfectionism and they're, you know, there it is. And, and so, and, and then, you know, the language of inner mentor as well, you know, that makes a lot of sense in a, in a kind of a um, more executive area or, or sort of workplace mm. or, you know, and, and drawing on that idea of the boardroom and, and even, even the, the, the sort of the, the, the strength and courage thing, but then the smooth operator, you know, that, that's, that's very good. You know, like the, there's, yeah. there's actually the diplomat or, or there might be a range of, of inner mentors. And mm. then there's the inner tormentor. Uh, my favorite thing that I use for couples is the, is the goblin self. Right, so the, the version of you who is sitting there like waiting for your partner to come home and you're ready to pounce. You're just the, the goblin is argumentative. It likes to kind of point score and it's just a right little shit. Um, and then we all have that version. I guess that can embody sort of the, the darker side of ourselves to kind of use that language, the Jungian um, influences in, in compassion focused therapy, but it captures it in a way that the general public understand. Because when I use that with couples, they go, oh yeah, yeah, I've, I've been a bit of a goblin today. And they can kind of own it and say, I'm sorry, I was in my goblin self. Um, that did not come out of my mouth the way I meant to. And then they can learn to then step into a more compassionate version of themselves and say the same message in a different way. Because we know from research of um, John Gottman, who's a couples researcher, has looked at decades of research in his so-called love lab, looks at you know the, the way you start up a conversation has a huge impact for how that conversation is going to end, You know what's going to be the outcome of it. If you enter that conversation as your goblin self, you're unlikely to get the outcome you want. You're likely, unlikely to get the connection you want with your partner. You're likely, unlikely to get your needs met. So almost like softening and soothing that and stepping into the compassionate version of you that can be a lot easier when we think, oh, no, I was just a bit of a goblin there. It becomes less of a, what is wrong with me? Why am I not my best self at all times? And all of these things that float around on social media, I've got a very strong foot in Instagram. And now you see these things like be your best self, live your best life, and which is very at odds with what we talk about within CFD of how life is full of struggling, life is full of pain. And at times you will, you know, your dark sides will come out. So I find that really interesting of even how personality research shows that how even good sides you can become overextended and then displayed in a way that's unhelpful and that could be part of the goblin as well so the organized planned structured partner can come out as a goblin version of themselves would be really rigid and like punitive and impatient with the other person not doing what they're supposed to be doing 
and the very spontaneous, you know, creative, innovative person, when that becomes overextended and overstretched, their goblin self comes out as impulsive, thoughtless, just laissez-faire, can't do what they're supposed to be doing. And when those two goblins meet, as you can imagine, fights will occur. <laughs> what are your thoughts about guilt in, in there? You know, that, that, that in couples, that, you know, we might feel badly about, you know, perhaps, you know, doing something that hurts the other or, or that sort of thing. Mm. And, um, and, and as you know, Paul Gilbert talks about guilt in some ways is emerging from the kind of the, the caring motivation, in a sense, the green circle and, and so on. So, yeah, what, what are your thoughts about guilt in the context of couples? Mm, I think that's a really uh, helpful question to think about because we often think that guilt is something bad or, or we shouldn't have it. And that's often because we've confused it with shame. So mm. I want to think, I mean, I find that Brene Brown says this so helpfully for people who are not familiar with with all the research, et cetera, is that guilt is I did something bad. Shame is I am bad. And as you can imagine, when I work with couples, and especially after the past year we've had, I've seen a lot more infidelity trauma. You know, people have been their goblin themselves. You've not, you've not been the best version of you when you've been living in a global pandemic on top of your partner 24-7, no childcare, having to homeschool your kids and still have manic pressures from work because all the workplaces are you know, struggling for money. So when we're not the best version of ourselves, we will do bad things, mm. you know? And I often see that when I work with infidelity trauma, that the participating partner in the infidelity can feel deeply struck by remorse and guilt in a way that's helpful, right? Because mm. it signals to the other person that I have awareness of how my actions have affected you. That can be coming from the caring motivation. That can come from, you know, empathy compassion for the the impact and often it's very hard for those partners for the for the injured partner the betrayed partner to move forward towards forgiveness uh, until they can see that that is true remorse and true guilt so guilt can help us move towards repair it can help us to move towards insight and growth and learning again if we bring a self-corrective kind of hat onto that rather than a self-critical hat so what i see in those partners where the participating partner is very hard on themselves, has that strong inner tormentor um, or inner critical voice, then they may not bring guilt to the table, they bring shame to the table, which is, I'm a horrible person, I can't believe I did that, this doesn't, like, this is not me. I've seen a lot of stories this past year with, like, this is, I don't understand, I was like, I've woken up out of a fog or a nightmare and I've done these things that's like, this is not me. I don't know why I was sexting this other woman or I don't know why I was flirting with that man at the gym or I don't know why I had, you know, sexual intimacy with someone who meant nothing to me. So it's that sense of why we step away from our values, why we step away from the person we want to be, the care and commitment we have to our partner. It can be really helpful when we then realize with guilt that that thing I did, the mistake I made was wrong. And what I can do to repair that is to learn from the mistake, put systems in place. So for instance, we look out for risk factors or slippery slopes for these things to happen again. That is hugely difficult for the participating partner. That takes a lot of courage and strength because you have to look at yourself. You have to like basically hold up a mirror to your goblin and say, I did these things. And then it's very difficult to not then enter into shame. So I did these things that must mean I'm a horrible person. I'm the worst partner ever. I'm shit. I'm bad. Mm. So that's where we then need to soften 
and help them sit with that inner criticism and soften and soothe that. Because if you are in that space, you are much more in your threat system. As you know, that obviously that blocks your, your caring commitment into the other person. And it becomes more about your own pain rather than the, the injured partner's pain. And that's where we often do that work where we help that person move from shame into guilt so they can repair their action. They can take, take steps forward to learn from what happened, look at themselves with kindness, with understanding, with forgiveness. So when we say forgiveness in infidelity, often people think it's the person who's been hurt who has to forgive the other person is so much about them forgiving themselves as well taking themselves off the hook by still holding themselves accountable so that's the classic it's not your fault but it's your responsibility kind of thing mm. so stepping out of blaming and shaming means that we can have a more fruitful dialogue about what does this mean what was the underpinnings of this what was going on in your relationship so we can repair not only the trauma of the infidelity but repair the stuff that was maybe not so functional in your relationship that led up to the trauma and then move forward into a, a better atmosphere. And that's where we then build a kind of more of a compassionate climate for them to be more forthcoming when they feel dissatisfied way, way earlier than you know, letting this kind of train wreck happen. So maybe signaling, I feel, I feel like I'm a little bit neglected at the moment and getting their needs met earlier means that you know, we're turning towards compassion for ourselves, but also compassion for the other person. So there's a lot of the flows going back and forth, as you can imagine, because then we also have a lot of resistance for the person who's been participating. They can really resist kindness coming in from the betrayed partner. I don't deserve this. I've treated you like shit. I don't deserve you being kind to me. I don't deserve your forgiveness. But then it can also go the other way that the person who's been hurt feels that I don't deserve, you know, you don't deserve to be forgiven. So they can struggle to give compassion flowing out. So a lot of this flows, as I can imagine, it's like a tennis match. We have to be like, oh, but hang on a minute. Where did that ball land? And where are you blocked? And what's going on? Um, so that's a lot of things happening in real time. A, a lot of food for thought. It, it really is bouncing back and forth, isn't it? From threat system to soothing system, say, and, and, and sort of really, you know, kind of trying to, to create a, a bit of direction there where we move from shame to, to guilt sort of thing. And then from there, to reparation and, and connection or reconnection and and, yep. and ultimately forgiveness and, and compassion and and um, there's there's a kind of a, a, a directional piece to that but boy yeah people can bounce bounce around and and it's that's a tough tough road for people it can be and it's I think sometimes it's it's also really important to say that that's not the only trajectory sometimes that forgiveness leads you into thinking that the most compassionate thing to do is still to leave I can forgive and still not reconnect you know I can yeah. let you I can understand your actions I can understand with kindness where, where that came from I can understand the meaning of it and still choose to not continue our lives together I yeah. can still feel like that's not safe or I can't take that risk of that happening again but forgiveness is still about what it serves for you as a function it serves for you if you can if you move away from a relationship where you've been hurt and still don't let go that means that you're still living that and that that that, that the action still has power of you and it means that that's it means that you're living a life where you're constantly shrunk by that constantly smaller by it so it's that piece of work around forgiveness can still be very important even if the partners go separate ways and as one kind of the realizations of my my online course around this is that sometimes the most compassionate thing is to leave and then to that you can then do that amicably especially if you have children involved where the flows of compassion are even more important you're going to need to co-parent for many years to come um how are you going to do that um without say making that environment toxic so that your children picking up on 
nasty passive aggressive remarks or where that caring motivation has been blocked um and they witness that and your children grow up with kind of rather than having a working model of what love kindness and connection can look like and they will take that into their own adult romantic relationships they will see hostility contempt criticism and we know that has a really negative impact on how their attachment styles will play out in their own romantic relationships so i think it's even if we don't stay together because the the damage done is just too vast the compassion piece is still very very much important the lasting connection which yep. is uh you know sort of a wonderful title and um tell us a bit a bit bit more about that what what's the the sort of the structure of the book and yeah how would you mm. summarize that so the lasting connection which i it was a title suggested to me by the publishers i i wanted to call it let love flow and then i realized when i discussed it through that actually the lasting connection is way better because it also allows us to think about connection as kind of coming and going and that's to have lasting connection means tolerating that it will kind of wax and wane that's just normal so that's again that's the reality check of that we do within cft of how the world works that we know that relationships have ups and downs so the first section of the book um is around that is understanding relationships understanding love and why love isn't enough why we also need compassion to be able to navigate the hard times uh, within us and also within our relationships because when when partner is strained the relationship is also more likely to be strained. There's a strong correlation between the mental and physical well-being of each of each partner and the physical well-being and mental well-being of the relationship. And it goes both both directions too. So when you have relationship distress, you as an individual are more likely to have mental health problems. Mm. It kind of makes sense. If you're fighting a lot, you're more likely to feel sad, feel mm. irritated, feel like you've not slept well. Um, and when you're having those things, if you're going through a tough time at work, for instance, you're, you know, you're having feeling anxious or feeling stressed out. Of course, it's not rocket science to think that your relationship is going to be under more pressure. So the first section of the book is helping couples to understand uh, by lowering some of that sort of perfect love expectation that we've been fed from romantic comedies for decades, um, that it's not like that in practice. And the second part is more of the compassion training. We were kind of helping each individual to train themselves to be more compassionate to themselves as well as to their partner. And then the third section is where I'm adding kind of the more behavioral couples therapy skills in, you know, the traditional relationship skills that you need to be able to communicate compassionately, to be able to make decisions without just feeling yourself caught up in resentment because you've, you've made a sacrifice rather than a compromise, making joint decisions, connecting them to your values, what is important to you. That's where we use a lot of the ACT terms as well. How do we find a workable environment? What's functional for you? Um, and how, how does that feel like it's filled with vitality and meaning and then the last little snippet of the book is about the road ahead knowing that you don't just work on this once and then you sort of ticked off relationship skills done um you obviously have to keep feeding your uh, relationship much like you have to tend to your garden or it gets overgrown so the last section is a little bit about how self-care is couples care that if you're going to keep going with this hard journey ahead you need to top yourself up and then just looking out for potential pitfalls in the future so that you can continue to prioritize your relationship rather than think oh no it's, we, we're pretty solid now we're good now so i don't have to do anything about it no actually you have to keep feeding it you have to keep putting the fertilizer on the soil you have to keep weeding out the the weeds and all of those things are just about maintenance you mentioned the word tolerance and i remember my my mother uh dorothy steindl who was a, a gp but she's she's sort of told me once that in some ways one of the most important qualities in a relationship is tolerance 
what are your thoughts about tolerance then? You know, like, because, yeah, where does that fit in? Well, I think, I mean, I'm getting very theoretical now, but I sort of use, use kind of borrow that from dialectical behavior therapy. So um, when you work with perfectionists, there's, there's a form of dialectical behavior therapy or DBT, which is called radically open dialectical behavior therapy, where rather than it's, uh, it's not quite as much about sort of reining in the impulsivity, it's much more about loosening up the rigidity, you know, becoming more spontaneous, breaking rules and things like that. Uh, within DBT, the stress tolerance is a very common thing. And that's obviously because it follows through all the mindfulness kind of underpinnings of, of behavioral therapies. And I think of the stress tolerance is really, really important when it comes to couples, because there might be times where you have to tolerate not being able to have the last word. You have to tolerate not being able to be right. You know, Esther Perel, who's a famous couples therapist, talks about how you can be right or you can be married. <laughs> so you have to choose yes. there of where, 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 what's most important. And tolerating uh, maybe not getting to have the conversation exactly when you want to have it. If the, the kind of using tact and timing, knowing that actually it's going to be better for us if we park this conversation when, to when we are more well rested. Mm -hmm. Tolerating that life will be hard for a period. Tolerating, you know, going through the early years of, of raising young children. There's a lot of things to tolerate. And that is, if I'm really honest, very unsexy. Like no one likes to hear that. They want to hear that true love is beautiful. And once you find like your true match, the one, it will click into place. You'll be massively compatible and you'll have that chemistry and that will guide you through. So I think about sort of four C's, that chemistry and compatibility is nowhere near as important for a lasting connection as kind of more compassion and, uh, and being able to kind of have that sense of connecting with each other. Mm. So chemistry and compatibility um we kind of research shows that that is is not as important because you can be compatible in some ways you can like the same things but then what happens when life gets difficult what happens when you face a rough patch one of you gets you know gets a tumor one of you loses your parents one of you get on like get made redundant from work mm. all of these things that are part of the suffering of life can really wobble couples when they have an image of as long as we are compatible and we've had that chemistry that click we'll be fine but then they don't use any of these relationship skills they don't use the compassion to to deal with these difficult things they don't use the connection to keep choosing each other to keep working as a team mm. so it's actually more important to deal with your incompatibilities with compassion than it is to be fully compatible you, you kind of alluded to love versus compassion in, mm -hmm. in there and that that's as you know that's a that's a common question isn't it you know is is mm. compassion and love the same or different? I mean, what's your take on that, including in the context of couples? Yeah, I mean, I have to be really honest that I still haven't figured that one out fully myself. And it's probably one of the hardest chapters I had to write in the book, sort of ah. what is love, question mark. And, you know, besides just hearing that Hadaway song of what is love playing in my head repeatedly for months, um, I was really faced with that. I went deep diving into sort of Greek philosophers into, you know, what do they think what is love you know what is companionship what is um what is that sense of different kinds of love and how do, how does that fit with compassion so I, I i got quite stumped on that if i'm really honest because and i'm glad i did because if i would have come to sit down and write this and thought well this is simple i got the answer i would have missed out on the nuances and complexities of this so i think of more of how this shows up with the couples i've sat with in the room who have said we love each other but they wouldn't they wouldn't use any of the compassion practices that you and I know are very helpful. They would say, we love each other, but we're not kind to ourselves. You know, so that might be that I love you, 
but then I am burning myself out as a caregiver because I give everything to my child and I never give anything to myself. And then it's really hard to keep loving the other person because I've got no energy left for myself. So I can love you as a kind of almost like mental aspect of it, but it's more important also how we behave, how we act with love. That's a, another book by Russ Harris of showing that the behavior is to follow your values. And those values might be to be a loving partner, to, to have connection, um, to be kind, to be caring. And we can say, I love you without following that with behavior, without action. Mm. And that's where it starts to thin out very quickly in couples relationships. So unless you have a behavior that follows that, and those behaviors are a lot easier to do when you also treat yourself with self-compassion. Mm. It's a lot easier to top yourself up, it becomes more sustainable. So I talk a lot about sustainable compassion, that when we're thinking of giving out what you most want to receive in couples relationships. It's a lot easier to keep giving that out when you are topping yourself up as well. I mean, obviously Paul Gilbert talks about sort of the, the oxygen mask and, you know, putting that on, I'm even sort of saying the oxytocin mask, they put that on yourself first um, before you put it on your partner. So that's why I think love is not enough because then I can say, I love you. Um, and then what happens when your partner does something bad? Inevitably, they're going to mess up or you're going to mess up. Without compassion, we then get caught up in those things we said before, or where betrayal or ruptures are really difficult to repair. Love alone doesn't do that, because love alone may not have the strength to do hard things like compassion does. It has the courage to look at yourself without blame. Um, I mean, some people might say, well, what about then just self-love? If you had self-love, then that would be the same. But I don't think it's quite the same. And obviously, we can get into a, a long conversation about the difference between self-love and self-compassion. But in my experience with with perfectionists, they're also finding it a lot more provoking to consider the concept of self-love, whereas self-compassion, I don't have to love myself at all times. I can also tolerate that I have dark sides. I can tolerate that I do bad things at times. I can tolerate that I'm human. So I find that that's a much more tolerable and acceptable term for people than it is to say self-love. Yes. I mean, sometimes we might love our partner and, and not be terribly compassionate towards them and, and, um, sometimes we might love our partner and be very compassionate towards them and, and their, their dark side or, or, you know, our own dark side in, in the mix. And, but, but sometimes we might actually really fall out of love with a person and start to really dislike them or, or mm. even, you know, hate them at some degree, but then maybe we can still be compassionate towards them too, you know, in the end. Absolutely. Uh, I might not feel strong love for the partner, for, for my, for the person I'm with, but compassion teaches us that actually that's okay. In times we might be strained away and understanding actually that's not my fault. Look at what's going on. I'm sleep deprived or I've just been made redundant or my, my partner has just done this thing that is a mistake they made that I'm really angry with them or feel really upset with them or hurt by them. I don't feel love in this moment, but I'm choosing our connection because compassion teaches us that we can, come back again and come back together again. And when we start to kind of tap back into that care and commitment, the love can then flow again. The love can then come back again. So I've seen people do things because they've sort of made a commitment to each other and they have that intention setting is something I do a lot in the beginning of a piece of work with couples because they often can tap back into what was our intention when we got married? What was our intention when we got together? What was our intention when we had this child together? And then they can tap back into that and have that as a reminder that that was the caring commitment we did have at one point. That was the, you know, the clarity we had around how we both feel about each other and what we wanted, the clarity of our goals together. And that we just lost sight of that when we said we fell out of love. Well, okay, well, 
actually then when you remind them of the intention, often the love starts to trickle back, back in again. And having that intention in the back of your mind means that you can hold that almost like a like a rope that you hold on to when you're climbing up the, the mountainside, that this is going to be hard work, but our intention is this, it's steering back to your values. Um, and uh, I, I often like the term of gentle returns that Kelly Wilson talks about within ACT. So when you drift away, obviously that's where awareness comes in, the mindfulness comes in, you notice you've drifted away, you've acted like a goblin self, and then we gently return, is that the gentle part is, is really important. That's the self-compassion aspect. We don't return with with self-blame or what's wrong with you you acted like a so-and-so but you actually return back with kindness saying well it's understandable that we've both been butting heads here that we've both been the worst versions of ourselves considering everything we've gone through now we gently return to that intention to that caring commitment we have to each other you have a very helpful way of explaining things and and um and you, you've got many things on the go that obviously your your business and and your the, the clinical work that you're doing you've you've published the book and you've got the podcast and, and I'm guessing other things afoot. So what, what, what's, what's next for you or what's, what's happening, you know, in terms of maybe projects or things you've, you've got on the go from here. Yeah. I'm, I'm hoping to write another book um, wow. with the work, with a working title called pause purpose play, because that's the name of my podcast and my sort of one of the, the kind of, I guess, models I use, which is sort of a, amalgamation of, of different things we know are helpful from the evidence base of so the pausing element is the mindfulness facts aspect not just slowing down because obviously that's really helpful for perfectionists but not just slowing down to to work less hard to do less of the busyness but also slowing down to be able to notice and become aware of your inner world and in partners work obviously also your outer world to notice other people so pausing for long enough to kind of connect with what's important to you what's what your values are and that's the purpose piece when we can live a more valuable life and we can live life that is more authentic and in line with our kind of true north, it does feel more rewarding. And also that's the drive system that we're actually living with vitality, with meaning, excitement, joy, uh, a lot more sort of kind of a blend of hedonistic and eudaimonic well-being, if you may, that way we feel I'm fulfilled. I've got, I've got well-being. I'm, I'm, I feel topped up. Uh, rather than when we're doing things and meeting goals because of our threat system telling us if you don't meet that goal, you're going to fail. So we're trying to make them values-based achievements rather than fear-based achievements. And then lastly, when you can do that, when you're able to slow down, you've stepped more into your soothing system, you step more into sort of calm connection so that you can step into your drive system to have, to have kind of purpose and meaning, you also get play. You also get spontaneity, fun, liberation, all of these things that um, is probably the most common word that people say to me at the end of a, an episode of Treating Perfectionism. I feel liberated to choose to live the life I want, mm. not to live the life I think other people expect of me, which is interestingly the top regret that uh, came out in a piece of research done by a palliative care nurse who asked people on their deathbeds, what is your top regret in life? And some people said, obviously, I worked too much. I didn't see my kids enough. But the top regret was... I lived a life expected of me, not a li life I wanted. Mm. So that is what I do in the pause purpose place. So I want to put all of that in a book um, to try to get that out in a packaged way that is not, um, I think a lot of perfectionists can see really helpful, useful tools and see them as a preachy must and should. I must, you know, I must meditate every day. If I haven't gone to yoga, I failed. And that means that they're kind of almost like throwing the baby out with the bathwater and missing these opportunities to do really helpful things 
And even research shows that my mindfulness is, can be really aversive for, for people with high levels of perfectionism because it makes them slow down and reflect on stuff that they previously are too busy to really get in touch with. So my aim is to package this in a way that becomes palatable to people who really need it the most, who have these resistances and these blocks. So the, the book would be about weaving in uh, research around perfectionism and also the societal pressures um, specifically on women um, that prevents us from giving time to ourselves, that prevents us from self-care, that paints pictures of perfect motherhood, et cetera. So well, like pulling together perfectionism with my perinatal mental health stuff, but I won't be doing that just yet because I'm six months pregnant. So the next oh. thing is to <laughs> birth a baby, connect with baby and have that priority. And then I'll get to it when I get to it. Yes. Oh, well, that does sound like a, an exciting project right at the moment. I do like pause, purpose, play. All of those things are kind of showing up on my pause, purpose, play podcast uh, at the moment. So if people want easy sort of snippets to kind of rather than go through a whole book, they can tune into the podcast as well. So for the the, the viewers or the listeners here, uh, what what would be your sort of three tips, you know, in, in terms of uh, for, for people that are kind of on their way or, or beginning or, or sort of making their way on, on their own compassionate journey? So, yeah, I'm going to start with the first one, pressure. Trying to recognize any pressure you put on yourself and see if that's internal pressure, again, through no fault of your own. If you've grown up with high standards, you would have internalized that dialogue from the caregivers you were growing up with or the teachers you had. So recognizing your pressure as being internal or maybe external, or maybe they're feeding each other. So precious one to be really, really um, uh, aware of and see if you gently, softly can let go of any of that. What would your life look like if you were reducing the pressure by 5%? You know, we're not saying go from, from here to here. You're not going to go from, you know, high striving corporate person to Australian surfer dude, like no offense to <laughs> Australian surfer dudes. I'm taken. But, but I, I think that's quite a kind of a, a lobotomy journey that we're not going to be able to, to make. So actually, how would you kind of slow down? How would you cut 5% off of that pressure? What would your life look like? What gains could you have? A second thing, I guess, would be permission. Because when you then start to do that, you will hit upon your resistances. Giving yourself permission to take the time it takes. That it will just be a slow journey for you. It might be two steps forward, one step back it's very rare that I see a linear sort of like, yes, this one thing that made the veil come down. It's much more of a slow chipping away. Like that particular client taught me that. He's like, it's chipping away of a dam. And eventually after I kept pecking at it, eventually, bam, and I felt liberated. But it was a lot of pecking before I got there. Mm. Um, so that's the permission for this to be a slow journey. And the last thing would be progress. <laughs> So allow yourself to, to aim for progress rather than perfection. That, you know, taking two steps forward and one step back may not feel in your mind like the perfect journey, but it's still making process because you still got a, you know, a total of one step forward. Mm. So progress means that we allow the bumps in the road. We allow ourselves mistakes, mishaps, kindly, you know, noticing when you've fallen back into old habits and then gently returning to the journey you want to be on. So that's kind of what I would say. Brilliant recognizing pressures permission to take the time and progress rather than perfection yeah. very good so if, if people were wanting to yeah follow you or engage with you and your work or be in touch what, what, what are some of the, the the ways there for them yeah so they can go to the thomasconnection.co.uk 
um, to that's my website where you have all the information about where you find the book and the podcast and all that. If you want to listen to the podcast, it's called Pause Purpose Play, and you can find it on any platform you listen to. If you want to follow me on socials, there will be the Thomas Connection in various formats. So on Instagram, it's the underscore Thomas underscore connection. On Facebook, it's just the Thomas Connection. And I also have a free Facebook group for anyone who wants to join called Pause Purpose Play. So you just go to facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash Pause Purpose Play, and then you'll find it. Excellent. Well, I'll put all those links in the description as well for people but um Michaela that that's been really really great I I, I am so pleased that that we got to have a, a good proper chat and and I, I'll, I'll sort of yeah, just sort of say it again you you really are able to articulate these things in ways that are, are, are sort of I don't know easy to understand with examples and metaphors and and and, and so I yeah I appreciate that I appreciate the work you're doing and and Thank the way you. that you're you're getting the message out there it's it, it's important stuff so thank you for being thank you on very Compassion much for having me <laughs> yes and i was even wearing a t-shirt and i was saying right the same thing right back at you stan that you have such a natural talent for for doing kind of packaging complex terms into something that can be accessible because if it's not accessible we give up we get overwhelmed so yeah. little bits here and there little insights little light bulbs and then all of that tends to lead into small little changes which are more sustainable so thank yeah. you for the work you do as well thank you excellent we will talk again bye